from newstalkzb.co.nz. It's the Mike Hosking Breakfast with BNZ. Welcome to the rewrap for Tuesday. All the best bits from the Mike Hosking Breakfast on News Talk ZB and a sillier package. I am Glenn ZB. And um, this morning, uh, the Kiwi build. <laughs> oh dear. Um, uh, water tax. Is, why are we having that when we were told we weren't going to have one? The guy who made the Michael Jackson documentary and some things that the Hosk uh, might be in charge of that he doesn't necessarily know about. Uh, but before any of that, the Spark Sport app. It's here, or is it? What they're trying to do is hard. Streaming is full of faults and problems, and this is not a country with cutting-edge streaming services. Not a single one of us. Whether we know a lot or next to nothing about streaming and tech says this is simple stuff. It has a mixture of the unknown, of pushing boundaries, and basically pushing our own technical capabilities and desires. And many, rightly or wrongly, don't want to need to know about it. Can't get our head around it. Don't see the need to. The whole experiment starts off with the hard yards of dragging a rugby-mad nation across the technological line and into a world we didn't necessarily ask to be in. So we have a room full of doubters. And on day one, this Sunday, Formula One's opening race in Melbourne, Spark aren't ready. And it is grist to the grumpy tech-phobics mill. And let's be honest, the crowd for Formula One is a fraction of what will be lined up in September for Japan. This weekend, they're offloading the race to TVNZ. Their free-to-air partner, TVNZ, will be rubbing their hands with glee. Are the old-world free-to-air terrestrial dinosaur able to deliver what the cutting-edge trendies down the road can't? How ironic. Now, this is technically a trial for Spark. Uh, it's a free give-it-a-go, see-what-you-think-practice lap in that sense. Uh, so, I guess, no need to panic. But if you ever want an example of what energises and unites a nation, nothing beats rugby in World Cup year. And to play with that sort of history and emotion and cultural connection by offering up something new and edgy by way of a fan experience is to take on as big a hurdle as any corporate could ever possibly imagine. They simply have to have it spot on. The clock is ticking and week one, when the light went green, they stalled the engine. See what he did there. Uh, certainly, it hasn't turned up on my phone yet. I can't put it on my phone. And I've got one of the flash of phones around at the moment. I'm reviewing the new Galaxy S10 Plus. Um, but I'll be pretty excited to use it when it does turn up on there. I must go home and see if it's on my tally. Um, before any of that, though, uh, the the Kiwi build situation. Where are we at with this? Uh, they've built some houses sold even less than half of them. What's going on? Once again, Kiwi Build, uh, more numbers that uh, just show you what a desperate mess this whole thing is. 74 houses have been built. 74 Kiwi Build homes have now been built around the country, short of 1,000. Remember in July they were supposed to have 1,000. Here we are in March, the 74. It shows you how hopelessly short they are. Of those 74, and here's the real crime, 39 aren't sold. In excess of half of the houses they've built haven't even been sold. And I watch yet again the incompetent housing minister on the television news last night, busily by way of an explanation saying, well, look, the median or typical time it takes for a Kiwi house to sell is 48 days. And I go, well, fair enough, that happens to be true. And yet he, he doesn't seem to register that he's in excess of 70 days. So well in excess of the median or typical time, as he puts it, to sell a house. So why aren't his houses selling? The man who was building the houses to solve the crisis in housing, can't A, build a house, and B, when he's built a few, even sell them. What crisis? And the answer appears to be part of the problem is location, the configuration, 
and just making it too difficult for first-home buyers basically to register. They don't treat the customer well, and you, you think to yourself, if you're a first-home buyer, why would it bother? So you don't, and so you go elsewhere. So Phil's built 74, hasn't sold 39. What a mess. One of their biggest policies going. Couldn't get it off the ground. Uh, so this, of course, led to uh, quite a heated exchange between Mike and the Prime Minister this morning. Uh, uh, but before that exchange happened, uh, there was one about Shane Jones being in meetings that he shouldn't be in. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll bring that up again at the end of the podcast. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the water tax uh, that we were told we wouldn't have, but it looks like we might have. People who protest appear to have forgotten, ignored or indeed remained ignorant around the facts. This water that's being bottled by Asians, as in the Christchurch example, could have been bottled by anyone. And picking on the Christchurch example, we show, of course, our xenophobia. The fact we didn't think of it is our fault, no one else's. And indeed, there is nothing stopping us getting a tap and getting stuck into the water bottling business ourselves, if we so wish. There seems upset as well over the fact that councils don't get money out of it. Well, they do. Taxes, rates and jobs that the water bottling process produces. The same as any business. Uh, Could they charge more than they do? Yes, they could. Ask them why they don't. Don't do it by trying to ban bottlers. But if you're going to tax water, how about all the other heavy water users, like farmers? You going to tax some farmers some more? What about the wine industry? A lot of products have water related to them, and if they're not on a regulated metered system, they're not taxed. Is it a tax just for bottled water, or are we going after all water? What about the water in beer and coke? And so it goes. Then David Parker says that if we taxed water, councils could give us a rates cut. Stop laughing. He, just, he really said that. Do you really think that's going to happen? No, me neither. Or he said we could use the water tax to clean up the streams. It's not going to happen either. It's just another tax from a government that loves taxes. We have taken water and given it a standing it doesn't deserve. There is a heap of it. And if you really want more, which we don't, then capture it. But protest built on false ideas and false premise doesn't deserve a tax. It deserves a lesson in rainfall, capture and picking on foreigners with clever ideas. Now, um, if you've been listening to these podcasts for a long time, you'll know that I, I moved house uh, a few months back. And one of the great spin-offs of that is that there was a large space for a large fridge, which we snuck into the, exp- the general sort of expenses of moving house. And uh, it, it dispenses water out of the fridge on purpose. I've never drunk so much water. Well, my point is, I hope they don't start taxing that. I don't want it costing extra. Uh, Now, uh, Leaving Neverland, one of the most talked about documentaries in ages. Here's the guy who made it. Let me ask you, Dan, as a documentary maker, right, because (coughs) when this opened at Sundance back in January, uh, there were people to help out at the time. Uh, The graphic nature and how much of that was uh, portrayed, how did you as a documentary maker think, how far do I go so it's not tabloid versus uh, it needs to have enough detail so it's serious versus it doesn't need to have so much uh, that it puts people off? Um, I mean, that was a, that, that's, a, that's a, a, a delicate balance to strike. And I thought very carefully about it and we went back and forth. I think two things you needed to, it needs to be graphic enough to, to confront people with the reality of what it means for a seven-year-old child to be sexually assaulted by an adult male you know that's horrific and it's awful and um and, and it's it's not just a bit of sort of careless cuddling you know and the other thing is that we needed to debunk in no uncertain terms the myth that Jai, that michael put about this smoke screen that he his love for 
children were somehow platonic and innocent, and he just liked to give them a little cuddle in bed. You know, um, we need to put paid to that once and for all. And I think we have. Have you successfully, do you think, put paid to the, the counter-argument that was always coming, I guess, is that these guys want money, and if they don't want money, they want attention. If they don't want any of those, they want some sort of payback. In other words, this is an agenda. Yeah, I mean, the question of, uh, you know, why should we believe them because of what you just mentioned? I mean, really the appropriate question to ask is why shouldn't we believe them? Certainly you do tend to, don't you, when you just see somebody, in, in that, especially in that sort of documentary format, um, you tend to just take people at their word. wonder why that is. Um, you know, if it's a politician, we don't believe anything that they say, and they're on TV all the time. Uh, but when, mind you, you, you can't let really politicians get away with everything they say. One of the more unusual aspects of the exchange with Mr Dern this morning was that part of the problem or the conflict or perceived conflict of interest was, of course, that Chain Jones, at one point, this particular company that got $4.6 million from the Provincial Growth Fund, once upon a time, Shane Jones was touted as the chairman of this particular organisation. Hence, I would have thought a stark conflict of interest. And then Mr Dern came back with this. I think you'd be surprised, Mike, there's probably quite a few organisations who from time to time might float your name around as patron or what have you, and you may not know about it. So the call's going out this morning. Well, we've actually been flooded uh, that she's right. Is she? Yep. Um, there's the BSA. <laughs> oh, no, hang on. Sorry, I've misread that. It's the, BA- it's the BAS, the Bordeaux Appreciation Society. They're oh, interested they're in having you in charge. Uh, we've got the High Speed Racetrack Crash Survivors Support Group. Right. Uh, the Problem Hairstyles Working Group. The professional vacuum users of New Zealand, they, they've been trying to get in touch with you. To, they want if you, have, you to cheer that up. If you are listening to this this morning and have ever heard my name being touted as a patron slash chairman of anything... Surely you've been contacted by the FCA, the Fashion Crimes Anonymous <laughs> outfit. You no, I have not. Please no. let me know because it's a remarkable name... Uh, claim made by the Prime Minister. What did she say again? Just to be clear, what did she say again? I think you'd be surprised, Mike. There's probably quite a few organisations who from time to time might float your name around as patron or what have you, and you may not know about it. Has she been talking to the SAS? Is that what it is? Has she been talking to Kettle? There's there's one that you've definitely heard of because you've talked about it on this show. Which is? Mayor of Auckland. That is true. Maybe, Maybe it is. Anyway, let me know if you've heard my name being floated about. Like the Prime Minister. Has. Yeah, imagine if he ended up being there and he didn't even know he was running. That is actually probably the best way to end up being in charge of something, is not knowing that people want you to be in charge of it. Because uh, generally the people who want to be in charge of things are the least qualified people to be in charge of those things. That's been my belief anyway. I am Glenn ZB. Uh, I am in charge of this podcast, the rewrap, and I'll be in charge of it again tomorrow. I'll see you then.